Last time we were in the book of Matthew, we were talking about the transformation of Jesus on the mount, what I think to be Mount Hermon. And in that place, God allowed the glory of his son to be fully displayed to Peter, James, and John. I believe it's the perfected man that we are seeing glorified. For he was a man without any question. He was God without any question. But as a man, he was absolutely perfect, sinless, righteous, holy. And the way the gospel writers describe it, the glory of Christ demonstrated from the inside and radiated out of him through his clothing, which became white. As we think about that, we were told by Matthew, behold him. It's a word that means more than just take a look or, hey, look over there. It's a word that's meant to say, you need to intently stare at for the purposes of God look intently because if you will behold you will walk away differently I really believe Peter James and John walked away differently there were things that they saw and heard in that moment that they couldn't describe and Jesus said don't talk about it until after his resurrection Well, when they descended from that mountain and come back down to the common place of man, things transpired differently. And we're going to pick up the passage there in chapter 17 of Matthew, beginning in verse 14. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love it if you would read along with me out of your Bible. If not, there'll be the passages on the screens. And when they came to the crowd, speaking of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, A man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, obviously, if we read those two narratives succinctly, as Matthew meant for them to be, we would see that there would be a sharp contrast between the glorious experience that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus on the mountain and what was going on down in the valleys. The mountain really marked the the presence of God and the activity of God. I mean, in that narrative, we saw the glory of God, the holiness of God, the prophets of God. And we heard the voice of God as described in Matthew's account. Coming down the hillside or the mountainside, Jesus and the three disciples were confronted with different things. They were confronted with suffering and faithlessness and demonic activity. Clearly, the disciples had departed the realm of God and come into the realm of man again. And it's absolutely certain that they had descended the mountain of glory and entered into the valley, which is 
in the dominion of Satan. So as the crowd is there, one man comes from the crowd and he makes his way to Jesus, pleading for Jesus to bring relief to his son. He had attempted to do the same thing with the disciples of Christ, but they, to no avail, could remedy his problem. It seems the son had both physical and spiritual conditions that were obviously overlapping. He had a demon. We know that to be the case. Jesus rebuked it and cast it out. It seems as if he's had uh, an illness, epilepsy. Uh, Some of the gospel writers give more attention to the demonic spirit in him and the effect of that in what is described as the word epileptic or could also be translated lunatic. But it's so, so vast and so uh, incredibly destructive that it makes this boy uh, run and try to put himself in a fire or try to drown himself in water. So whether it's the demonic that is actually bringing conditions out like this or he's heightening the condition of epilepsy, I don't know. All I know is this. This boy is in dire need. And the father knows there's only one who can remedy this, and it's Jesus. He's the one who has the power to transform it all. So filled with love for his son, The father brings his son to Jesus, first to the disciples, and then to Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, the disciples couldn't bring about any change in the boy. And that's always intriguing to me. Because back seven chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had given the disciples authority over demons. In fact, he sent them out two by two, and they came back. They were just utterly ecstatic and astounded that every demon they exercised that they confronted and every sickness they healed as they confronted it. But here we are in chapter 17 and a boy with a demon and sickness they can't help. Jesus had already given them the authority. There he is. (laughs) You're keeping your eye on him? (laughs) Well, let's all watch him for a minute. Then you're going to look back at me, okay? I don't want that thing having the attention that the Word of God needs. So Jesus, of course, uh, he has the authority by which he can exercise power over this demon. And that's exactly what he's going to do. What is a quandary to us is if he had also given that authority to the disciples, why didn't they act in it? Or why couldn't they act in that? Well, I want to pose some questions today, and I want us to dive into this passage. To first, figure out what we can learn from it. And then secondly, how can we grow in our faith as we're reading and engaging this word? Now, obviously, a a miracle is needed, and all the elements for a miracle are there. They're they're in the story. In the story, you have somebody who has a need of a miracle. In this case, it's a little boy. So he's there, he's present, and you have, have somebody who's going to bring the one in need to the Savior. So that's the way it is for, with all people. Uh, the way that Jesus moves in their heart most often is somebody brings them to Jesus. Somebody introduces them to Jesus. Somebody has printed a Bible, and the Bible and the Word of the Bible transforms their heart, transforms their life, the truth therein. Or somebody is preaching the Word, somebody's sharing the Word, so you've got to have that going on. In this case, it's the boy's father. And you have to have somebody who 
knows ministry, who, who's been trained in ministry, somebody who knows how to engage in ministry. In this case, it's the disciples who have been trained by Jesus how to minister among the people who are broken in this world. And you have to have a fourth thing. You have to have the will of the Father, God, to want to bring transformation to the individual. And I'm going to tell you, you've got all four of those in this story. You've got all the makings of a miracle here, except for one. You've got one condition that is unmet. And it might be the case today, there, there is a need for a miracle. There's the desire of God for a miracle to take place. There's people who are longing for those miracles to take, to take place and have been trained in ministry for those ministry miracles to take place. But there might just be one thing missing, and it's the most prevailing and prominent thing. All the elements were right except for this. They needed one person in the midst of the crowd who would be willing to stand in truth and faith and proclaim the will of God in the life of that boy. That's what's needed today. We need somebody to stand up in the truth and the faith of God to proclaim His will. And his will is that people would be redeemed. His will is that people would be reconciled, that people would be made whole. Sozo in the original language. It means to be completed in him. And I'm wondering today, by the end of our time together, might there be one person, three people, nine people, 12 people, or any measure by which the Spirit of God would say, you're the one. I pray it'll be me. And I pray that it'll be you. And that God would bring a transformation around us because we're people who are willing to stand in truth and faith with courageousness, with courage, and move towards the will of the Father. Proclaim it to be so. Well, after this man discussed his needs with the Lord and talked about the disciples' inability to rebuke the demon that was in his son. Jesus noted the powerlessness and he rebuked his disciples for it. What we've recognized is that their lack of power is precipitated by their lack of faith. In fact, Jesus just calls them right out. He says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Now, in the narrative, as Matthew gives it, it sort of looks like Jesus is saying that to the Father, but he's not. The Father is a man of faith. He's come to Jesus. He's come to the people of Jesus. And he's believing, trusting that Jesus can bring a radical change to the life of his son. I think Jesus is looking first to his disciples, those nine who are in that valley who proved to be faithless and powerless. And he's rebuking for them for that. And he says to them, you are faithless and twisted. Now there's other people around. The crowd is large. There's people who have been followers of Christ, but some of them are just wanting to be near Christ to see the dog and pony show that goes on around him. They want to see him do something. They want to see him multiply something. They want to see a miracle. They're not interested in transformation. Listen, Jesus didn't come to do miracles. Jesus did not come to feed people bread. Jesus came to be the bread of life and to transform people's souls. And all that other was just a means to move towards that end. There's a lot of people around. But there's only a few who are really willing to engage in the kingdom transformation that Jesus Christ can engage in them. So obviously the Lord has a measure of frustration. You can hear it in his, in his rebuke to them. But I think it's even more than frustration. I think it's grief. 
knowing that he is not going to be present with them physically for long. Remember, the, the transformation experience is a, is a transition in history. The dialogue, we don't know what the dialogue is, but I believe with all certainty the dialogue with Moses and Elijah and Jesus is they are talking about the coming days of the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion, and the death, and the resurrection. This is going to be the last miracle that Jesus does among the Galileans. In a few uh, passages, we're going to talk about some of the parables that Jesus taught them. But soon, he is moving to the cross, and he's moving on to Jerusalem. And he's going to spend his last days there. And he knows that his presence is not going to always be with his disciples. And it's frustration, but it's also grief that they have not gotten it yet. They have not understood the authority which he has and that he is treasuring into them. They haven't understood the power of the Holy Spirit who is coming. Jesus is already saying to them, I'm going away, but when I go away, my Father will send the Spirit and you will do greater things than these. Why? Because he will empower you and you will be empowered to cover the world with my authority. So he's grieved and frustrated that they're not getting it yet. They ought to be exercising in these ways of faith while the physical presence of Jesus has moved momentarily to a mountaintop and they're ministering among the valley. There is going to be a day for them that he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he will not physically be there. They have to know the authority of Christ that has been given to them. Can I remind us that is our job as well, to know the authority of Christ that is ours by His Spirit and to walk in that power and to serve in that power and to take authority in that power. So Jesus is grieved for the disciples. And might I just say, I think He's grieved over His church today who is faithless and powerless as well. We are assured that Christ breaks the power of Satan, that he trumps Satan at every turn. Now, Satan thought he was most powerful, that he, he thought that if he killed Jesus, this redemption plan would be over with and you and I would be eternally separated from God. He must have thought as Jesus was nailed to that cross, I got you now. He must have sneered and laughed when Jesus breathed his last as he was calling out, it is finished. He must have danced with glee when Jesus was put in the tomb and the stone was rolled away and the seal of the Roman government was placed there. He must have thought, this is the end. Oh, but what he didn't know is that there was a decisive blow coming to him. On the third day, Jesus resurrected as the prophet said he would and as Jesus foretold he would. Death and the, the grave would no longer hold him. Jesus would have victory over sin and death and the world never witnessed the power like it witnessed when the earth quaked and Jesus walked again alive. That's the power of the Spirit of God. And radically so, Jesus says to us, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave lives in us. So the Bible boasts about that great spirit dwelling within us and the power of the resurrection that is ours. We sing a song that really lifts up that truth. It's one that we've come to really like here. It's called Great I Am. 
The mountains shake before you, the words say. The demons run and flee at the mention of the name, King of Majesty. There's no power in hell or any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I Am. Man, I wish we could bust out in song right now, but that would mean that I would lead it, and you don't want that to happen. Brandon keeps championing me on. He might be up here being the one to lead the song. (laughs) You'd do it too, wouldn't you? (laughs) You and I must come to understand and have faithful confidence in the authority and the power of Jesus Christ that is given to us. And in that authority, we must stand in truth and in faith and proclaim the will of God. If I were going to tweet something out, it would be that. God, may I stand in truth and faith and proclaim your will in this world. That's our our task. And he's empowered us to bring that about. Now, we're more apt to do that when our thoughts and beliefs are not twisted. What does Jesus mean by that? Some of your Bibles might say perverse. Jesus says you are faithless and you're perverse, you're twisted. Now the root of that word in the original language means to turn, to turn aside or to turn away from. And so Jesus is looking to his disciples there in that valley in their powerless ways. And he says to them, you are faithless and you have turned away from my word. You've turned away from the authority that I've given to you. You've turned away from truth. Now, when that happens, unbelief rises. When we begin to think in twisted ways, away from the way and the word of God, then our our beliefs, being twisted as they are, become unbelief. Now, unbelief in its most elementary ways with God is You're at unbelief that God is saving, that unbelieving that He is transforming. Maybe your unbelief is your own doubt, whether you are in Christ or Christ is in you. I've been there before in my, my early days of Christian walk where doubt plagued me. And I can tell you with all certainty from personal experience, there is no power to mobilize the kingdom of God or make an impact for anybody transformationally as long as I'm doubting whether Christ is in me and I am in Christ. So you're going to have to settle that. Today's the day to settle that. I was encouraged Wednesday night in our night of worship, one of our band members, the drummer, Uh, who drums for us regularly, stood and boldly proclaimed right there that many years of his life was plagued with doubt. And the doubt was, God, did I say the prayer the right way? Did I use the right words? Did I mean it in my heart? Did I I really know what I was doing? And, And that went on for years. He said he had repeated the prayer of salvation thousands of times. With that kind of doubt, we never are mobile in our faith. Why? Because we even doubt our faith. You know what he came to recognize? That salvation was not banked on him saying the prayer the right way at the right time with the right heart. Salvation is not banked on me. It's not banked on you. It's based alone on Jesus Christ. It's not about how you say the word. It's about Jesus proclaiming the word to us. 
We're saved by His Word. He declares us to be saved. He declares us to be right. Remember when He's washing the feet of the disciples and Peter kind of becomes indignant. Oh, you're not going to wash my feet? Well, if I don't wash your feet, you can have nothing, I can have nothing to do with you. Okay, wash all of me. No, you don't need all of you. You're clean by my Word, Jesus said to Peter. So Jesus can declare us to be right before God the Father. He does that when we act in faith, that he's the Savior, the King. We submit our lives to him. So when this guy figured it out that my salvation is banked on Christ, then he could have faith that Christ alone could save him. And that freed him from, did I do it the right way? Did I do it with the right words? Did I do it with the right thought? It's based on Jesus. Some of you need to bank your salvation on Jesus. Today, at the end of this service, I'm going to give you an opportunity to put the stake in the ground and bank your faith on Jesus. Not on anybody else, not on you, not on anybody else's actions, but on Jesus alone. So he's calling you to his word. And his word is that God has sent his son who lived perfectly. And he did so so that he might be the sacrifice to take your sin and my sin upon himself and die with it there. Why? Because God demands justice. And justice always has a penalty where law is broken. Jesus says, let me take the penalty on their behalf. And he dies on that cross doing just that. It's my faith and your faith in Jesus who died with our sin, that can cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But it doesn't stop there. Because how would we ever stand before God without righteousness when God is righteous? Jesus steps forward and He gives us His righteousness. He credits it to us and declares us to be right by faith with God. Some of you need to be saved today. Let that be the case. Or it might be doubt in another way. It might be not just that Christ is in you and you're in Christ, but, but that you doubt the power of Christ. You're wondering if the power of Christ is evident and real today. Is he powerful enough to save anybody? Is he powerful enough to deliver some? Is he power enough to, powerful enough to heal? Can he meet that need? Can he break that stronghold of evil? Can he actually allow us to take back territory that is being dominated by Satan right now? You're doubtful of that. And Jesus is calling you out in your doubt. Or maybe your doubt is unbelief in the power of Christ in you, that he dwells in you, and that he can use you, that you can hear him speak, and you can respond to him, and you can engage his will, and you can do it with power. If you have doubt to that and unbelief to that, Jesus says, stop with your twisted thinking. Come back to his word. Believe that He can and will do great and mighty things through us by power of the Spirit. Now, that kind of doubt often goes undiscussed, but I want to champion you to do something. I want to ask you to be open about your doubt. You know what Jesus does? When, when He recognizes the nine are dealing with unbelief and faithlessness, He calls it out in front of everybody, and He has an open discussion about it in front of the whole crowd. Hey, when's the last time your life group or somebody in your D group said, hey, can you pray for me? Because, man, do I ever have doubt right now. When's the last time somebody asked you 
or you ask somebody to pray because of unbelief. It's not like it doesn't happen. It's the elephant in the room. How about us being transparent enough to bring it to the forefront and just say, hey, I'm struggling right now. The enemy is attacking. The, the, the Lord says we ought to be guarded about that. He will attack in various ways with various darts. And the way he does that with our salvation is by doubt. So you know what Jesus says? Put on the helmet of salvation. Go back to my word. What if we just brought it up? Pray for me. I'm really struggling in my faith right now. And in doing so, maybe the Spirit of God will champion you through other believers. Well, I think the disciples are hearing that, that internal dialogue that goes on in heart and mind. But I think they're also hearing the external. I think they're hearing from the naysayers around them. Don't have time to go into it, but Luke and Mark give us uh, parallels of this passage as well. And Mark says that the scribes are there. And anytime the scribes are around, what I see is them trying to belittle Jesus and call to question Jesus and his ministry or his disciples, constantly just pointing out this or that or the other, framing it in a way that it appears to be what it's not. So I think they're the hecklers. I think they're watching from a distance. Oh, watch this. Daddy's bringing his boy. Let's see what the disciples do with him. And when the disciples know they're there and hear their jeers, hear their questioning, they must have triggered doubt. And when they couldn't satisfy the father's need for his little boy, can you imagine the mockery that took place in that moment? Can you imagine the jeers, the laughing that they were enduring from the naysayers? And the more they heard that, the more I think unbelief and twisted thinking was on the forefront. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me. Knowing our ministry, knowing the call, knowing the word, but we're surrounded by naysayers. We're surrounded by unbelievers. We're entertained by the world and the communication of the world. And the world is unbelieving. Maybe we've heard them so that we register with doubt and unbelief. And it immobilizes us to the great call and commission of Jesus Christ Maybe we're more concerned about the hecklers and what they might say as we present the gospel or as we engage in a demonic, cruel world. Maybe we're more sensitive to what they're going to say about us or say to us. And so we just stop. And Jesus is saying, don't be twisted in your thinking. No matter the jeers, no matter the naysayers, don't be twisted in your thinking. Come back to truth. Now, the reason why it's so essential for us to have a daily time with the Messiah, a daily time with our Savior in Bible reading, in prayer, in worship, is because we need to hear His voice. So daily, we encourage you and each other to be engaged in word and in prayer and worship. And at a minimum, weekly, we encourage you to be with other believers so that we might speak truth into each other, that we might be vulnerable to each other and transparent to each other. It's the way that we get our thinking right and do ministry well. So when the disciples circle back to Jesus and privately ask him, so why couldn't we do what you did? He says this, 
because of your little faith. Now Mark adds the words, and because you didn't pray. And it kind of helps us to settle things down for a moment and just say, faith and prayer, we talk about those all the time. Those are crucial to our life in ministry and in Christ. Faith and prayer. We would say those are the essential things, but can I just remind us that those are the things that we most struggle with, faith and prayer? And maybe today ought to be the encouragement for us to say, okay, God, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to be a person of prayer and I'm going to engage you in this way. So turning away from God's word discounts the effectiveness of the power of God. It doesn't discount God's power. It discounts our effectiveness with God's power. And turning away from prayer makes it so that we don't engage in the spiritual way that God calls us to engage. Instead, we see things only in the physical. So faith in prayer is essential. If I were going to reduce it down to a sort of bottom line, it would be this. Don't listen to the naysayers. Instead, listen to Jesus and be people of faith. Remain steadfast and firm in your faith. In the word of God and in prayer, Take your stand as your ear is turned in the direction of the Father, listening for His instruction, knowing that as you're reading and hearing daily, faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Build in your faith. I'm a big fan of John Phillips. He's a commentator that has gone on to be with Christ. and In his writing about this section, I, I was most intrigued by it. Because he takes a, a more of a bird's eye view to the passage. Rather than breaking it down into smaller portions, he sees it in a big picture. If I were going to give illustration to that, it would be like us going somewhere. We go to Google Maps to see where we're going. But to get the perspective, we zoom out with a satellite image of Google with all the streets there. And we get a better perspective of where we're going, where we are, and how we get there. Philip says that this passage and what's going on is a picture of the church in this age. He says, I think this might be a bit strong, but he says it's a picture of the church that is dispirited. I would say it's a picture of the church without engaging the power of the Spirit. Now let me just go back through using Philip's analogy here and, and just... Think with you for a moment about what that looks like. He says, the view is of the disciples in the valley. They picture the church without the power of the Holy Spirit. And quote, Christ was absent, having gone on high to enter into his glory. Now, certainly that's the way it is for the church today. Christ has ascended, gone into glory, and entered there. And he says that some have gone on with him in the case of the 17th chapter of Matthew, it's Peter, James, and John who left to go with Jesus into glory on that mountain. For us, it's people of faith who have gone on before us. For me, it's, it's my mother-in-law. It's, it's recently case dad, my father-in-law. It's my grandparents. It's people that I know who have loved here at this church and other places who have had faith. And they've gone on to be with Jesus in glory. The church is pictured in that same way. Some uh, would recognize that he's gone on to be with them, but down below the believers there were powerless to, the fa to face crises, and they seemed to be resigned with that powerlessness. It's the same way here. 
Christ has ascended into his glory. There are some who have gone with him. Here we are in the midst of the crises of the world, and we have a church that's meant to be engaging, but we're powerless. And to many in the church, we're just resigned to the fact that we can't do much these days. Jesus is rebuking us for that. He's calling us out of that unbelief, and he's saying that's twisted way of thinking. For he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He hasn't changed. His, his power hasn't swayed in any bit. It's our effectiveness in that power. So evidently, these disciples had not even thought about praying. And evidently, the church doesn't engage the world with deep prayer either. So the real power of God seemed to have departed the people there in the valley. And it seems that the power of God has departed the church. But it doesn't have to be that way. I say let us never be resigned again to live powerlessly as a church. Let us live powerfully, not to grow satisfied with our services and ministries that are ineffective to change the course of evil in this world or in individual lives. May we never grow resolved to the fact that this community is too far gone from God. It's not. May we never come to the fact that, that uh, or think to the fact that this nation is too far broken that God can't repair it again. He can. May we never be satisfied with an impotent church, but instead believe and plead for God's transformational power to be effective in us. Let's take authority over the sin in our own lives and over the spirit that is evil and comes brokenness into our families and our in our marriages and in our kids trying to steal and destroy from them the wonder of physical strength and vitality and health of emotion and spirit. Let us take charge over those demonic forces that are at work against us and let us be resolved in the power of God that has been given to us already that we will never again live powerlessness. Powerless. But may we forever be marked with the power of Jesus Christ. The demented boy is a picture of the people in the world who are in the grip of the evil spirits of the day in their sin and in their lust. The father came to the disciples in hopes that they would be able to enact God's will in, their, in his boy's life, but they failed to do so. I can't help but be dismayed at the articles that I read on my phone, the reports that you read around our nation. Another school shooting. Another racial war, and bias and prejudice. Another dysfunctional government. Another perverse abuse and a frenzy of lust. What you and I need to recognize is that the school shootings are a result of a community who is in the grip of evil forces. You and I need to recognize that racial prejudice and bias is not just at people, but it's the demonic oppressors that are working within people. You and I need to know that evil, dysfunctional governments are the result of the schemes of the, of the evil one who is the prince of this world. And you and I need to recognize that perverse abuse and the frenzy of lust in our communities is the result of evil forces at work in this day. The world is experiencing the grip of Satan. 
and it ought to be looking to the church, but what I'm seeing is that the church is indifferent to the world and its need, and the world is indifferent to the church and the hope that we have. Somehow, in our impotence, we have conditioned the world to look for other who are saviors. Listen, God did not make the answer to be in government. God did not make the answers to be in social workers. God did not make the answers to be in civil organizations. God gave the answer solely to the church. And he empowered the church to engage that answer into a broken world. Where is the church to take authority over those evil spirits who are bringing a degradation to our schools? Where is the church to speak truth into the lying of government? Where is the church to hold people accountable and help people to come out of the brokenness of sexual dysfunction? Where is the church to take the sledgehammer of God's word and break the chains that bind people? Where is the church? You know what we're doing? We're eating and fellowshipping and gathering and singing in a powerless and ineffective ministry. And God is calling us out. And he's saying, stop with the unbelief and the twisted thinking. Come back to my word. Know what I spoke to you. Know the authority that I gave you. Live righteously. Engage spiritually in prayer and take the authority and move my kingdom through the territory that is held by evil forces. It's you and me. We alone, we alone have the answer that God has given to the world. But we've got to engage it with power. I'm asking today for a handful of people I'm not asking for all of you I'm asking for three I'm seeking three that know the glory of God like Peter James and John or maybe if the Lord is gracious today I'm seeking nine who have been in the valley of doubt and powerlessness and today say no more I am not satisfied with that kind of life any longer. Or maybe 12 who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who can bring transformation to this community like the disciples did to Jerusalem. I'm asking for you. I'm asking for me to come to a place of truth. Stand firm in truth. And to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit to engage this evil world with the holy commission of Jesus Christ. I wonder who it is. Who are the three? Who are the nine? Who are the twelve? Now before you think you can name them, it's this one, it's that one. They seem to have it together. She seems to have it right. I just will remind you. That of the disciples that Jesus chose, nobody would have ever guessed that it would have been those 12. It's you. It's me. Oh, may the Lord find us faithful to be determined to trust Jesus and his word and his authority that has already been given to us. May the Lord find us faithful to be determined to know him and the power of his presence.
May he find us that we will be intentionally building our faith and exercising in our faith. That we will turn off the noise of the naysayers around us and turn into the word of God, tuned to the Spirit's ear uh, voice as we listen to him with our ears. Won't you be the one to no longer be resigned to a powerless ministry and a powerless life, but to make the impact that Christ has given you the authority to make. I say at the conclusion of this service, let's have a holy dissatisfaction with religious status quo. That we just say, no, no more. I don't want to live my life that way anymore, and I don't want to, want to participate in a powerless way anymore. I want to engage Christ in his power. I was walking up the hill to an overlook over the Sea of Galilee with a number of other people. And along the way, I stopped at what looked to be similar to yellow bells that we have at our house. The image was of a bush with little, small, yellow blooms on it. I paused to ask our tour guide, what is that? He said it's mustard. Now, there's variations of the mustard plant. Some of them look very differently, but that was the mustard plant. I just took a quick picture of it, and this morning I zoomed in that picture to show you those little pods. Now, I don't like mustard. I think that's the worst thing on the planet that God has made. It, it's just nasty to me. So I wasn't interested in the mustard, but I was interested in that mustard seed. And before God, may I confess to you, my faith family, I brought some of that seed home with me. Now, in doing so, I had to tell U.S. Customs that I did not have one of those seeds or any other seed like that, but before God, I'm confessing to you my lie to the American officials and my possession of an Israeli seed of a mustard plant. Because when I look at that, as grievous as the sin is, when I look at that seed, it reminds me of the words of Jesus who said, Randy, I'm so powerful. My word is so authoritative that if your faith will just measure that of this seed, you can say to that mountain, be moved, and it will move. Oh, that my faith would grow in my God. I was really taken aback as I just pulled one of those seeds off, held it in my hand. And I'm sure he's had it a hundred times the guide came to me and he said, you don't have the seed yet, Randy. You only have the pod. And if you open up that one little round pod, you'll find three seeds in there. That's what God's calling for. Faith of that. Oh, may God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son and all the provision that he has given to us to advance God's holy kingdom in this evil, adulterous world. May the faith in that triune God be so powerful that we can take back God's earth as he created it to be.